Hello, hello, and today I will be standing up for Sappho. So every series, we try to do a programme on somebody about whom virtually nothing is known at all, just to make it a little bit more of a challenge for me, I think. And this series, that person is Sappho, a woman about whom so little is known that in the 1970s, two French academics put together a dictionary of distinguished lesbians. I love saying that. It makes it sound like they're all wearing monocles and top hats. <laughs> distinguished lesbians. And um, on the page for Sappho, left completely blank. No one knows anything. So you may wonder how we're going to get a programme out of this. And that's a legitimate question. Here's actual facts that we know about Sappho, insofar as one can. She was born in the 7th century BCE, so around the year 630 BCE. Um, she lived in Mytilene on Lesbos, city on Lesbos. She wrote lyric poetry, so poetry that was intended to be played with a lyre rather than spoken, for example. And she had brothers, of whom we know the names of uh, a couple at least. And she died in the 6th century at some point. <laughs> 28 minutes to go though so <laughs> I thought next we'll do things that people believe to be true about Sappho with more or less evidence so things people believe to be true about Sappho well her family right people have them let's start with that so she very probably had a daughter a daughter called Clays it's a pretty name huh she refers to her daughter as being like golden flowers that's a nice thing to say about your daughter isn't it my parents are both here today they've never said that <laughs> I know, like golden flowers. Ah, oh, imagine if you were loved that much by your parents. Um, <laughs> um, but the thing is, the reason I don't feel conclusively able to say she definitely had a daughter, even though I believe she had a daughter, is because she uses the word pice, child, to refer to her. And sometimes pice is used as a, a slang word meaning your younger lover. And given that Sappho definitely did have younger female lovers... It's a bit of a risk, just a bit of a risk saying, I think she does, but, you know, I don't feel like I can conclusively state it. She probably has a daughter, maybe. Mm -mm. Parents. Par everyone's got parents, definitely parents. So let's start with her mother. We're told by ancient scholars that her mother was also called Kleiss. Now, if you're feeling a little bit suspicious around about now, you're right to, of course, they decide her mother must be called Kleiss because women often name their daughters after their mothers. So they've back-engineered her mother's name out of her probable but not necessarily the case daughter. <laughs> so that makes it a little bit harder. But men's lives, men's lives are generally better attested throughout history and especially in ancient history, right? So it's going to be easier for me to tell you about her father. Well, <laughs> there's a thing called the Suda, which is a Byzantine encyclopedia in literally all senses of the word Byzantine, <laughs> um, from the 10th century. So a thousand years ago from us, but 1,600 years after Sappho. And in the Suda, they offer eight possible names for Sappho's father. I think we can assume that Clace Senior was quite the popular lady. Um, <laughs> and those eight names in alphabetical order, uh, for ease of me remembering them, are Camon, Ecritus, Erigius, Etarchus, Eumenus, Scamandromenus, Seamus, or Simon. <laughs> I spent two weeks doing that. It's like a mantra. I've been running through the park saying it. 
<laughs> I'm hoping that it's Simon, do you know, just because he's easier to say. Um, she had brothers, and uh, we know the names of them, particularly Caraxus, who has an affair with a celebrated courtesan, an Egyptian courtesan named Rhodopis. Or maybe Dorica. (sighs) The Suda also, that Byzantine encyclopedia, also tells us the name of her husband. Now, you may be surprised to hear that she had a husband, since obviously she had relationships with women. You know, the ancients had no problem with you having affairs with men and women, irrespective of your sex. But the name of her husband is Kerkelas. And you go, oh, great, so at least we know that. Wait, what did you say his name was? Kerkelas, I have to tell you, is a Greek kind of slang word meaning penis. So what's happened here is some hilarious wag of the past <laughs> has gone, y- you know Sappho, who used to have lots of flings with women? Do you know what would be hilarious? <laughs> is if we married her to a man called Dick. Come on! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at King's College London. Edith How do we read her? The fragments are sometimes so spindly, so tiny. How are we supposed to... Are we supposed to construct a poem around it or are we supposed to see them as tiny mini-poems in their own right? Well, that's very interesting. And some modern poets, especially women, have have, have done incredible things with the very notion of fragmentariness that two or three words can actually allow you... You can think about them very, very hard. But the three or four really substantial bits, I mean, there's, as you say, two real long poems and then about five or six, where we've got most of it, we've got the gist, are of such one-off distinctness compared to everything else in ancient literature. I mean, they are so extraordinarily different in every way. They just blast you off the page. I mean, I'll never forget reading the only complete poem, which is where she summons Aphrodite in her chariot, born either by (laughs) sparrows or ostriches, Depending on how you translate the word struthos. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, that's a sort of lexical problem. That's like the third word in all of Sappho. Is it a sparrow or an ostrich? Yes. I mean, do you want your Aphrodite coming to her temple in a chariot drawn by sparrows or ostriches? I want sparrows, but loads of them. Because oh, no. ostriches is a bit too rod for me. <laughs> it's the I voice. It's the, this is how I feel when I'm in love. You know, the nearest thing to that that we'd ever had before was and Odysseus and Circe looked at each other and he lifted his sword at her and then they went to bed for a year. <laughs> I mean, that's sex in Homer. Right. <laughs> Now you've got a woman saying, I look at you and I am soaking with sweat and my heart is beating so hard I cannot bear it. I think I'm actually going to die and I've gone green. That is a subjective eye voice, which is absolutely the invention of world love poetry. So it is hard. It is hard to know things about Sappho. And she kind of exists in a space almost between being a real person and being a mythical person. She is, sometimes she doesn't seem real at all. You know, she appears on coins, for example. From the second century, you can see a second century Mytilenean coin in the British Museum, which has Sappho on one side and a lyre, her chosen instrument, on the other side. As though she were, you know, a goddess. You hardly ever get, you know, you get like the wife or the mother of an emperor on a coin. Sure, a Roman emperor. But a woman there for her own achievements, that's pretty rare. She appears on pots from much earlier than that, from the 5th century BCE. There's a a beautiful hydra, a water pot from Athens, which has her name written on it. It's misspelled, I think, I'm right to say. 
She's often misspelled, but I can't be judgmental because I am misspelling her as I speak her over and over again. When I say Sappho, I'm getting her name wrong. I'm just doing it because it's easier for me and I guess for you. But that first sound shouldn't be a, it should be a ps. And the sound in the middle, the first sound should have a p in front of it. So it should be psapho, which is incredibly hard to say, so we don't say it. But by not saying it, I'm adding to the sense of removing her reality from history. So Sappho is shown on this water jug and she's reading a papyrus, which is lovely because alphabetic writing begins after she died. Um, <laughs> so it's probably not an exact representation of how she spent her time. But on the plus side, it does give you a reason for why, you know that bit in Xena Warrior Princess? Don't judge me. Um, <laughs> where Zena gives Gabrielle a poem that she had Sappho jot down for her. <laughs> so lovely. And at the time, I was like, oh, they haven't even done the slightest bit of research into the development of alphabetic writing. <laughs> oh. And now I'm like, oh, no, maybe it's a little cheeky nod to that Hydra in Athens. Ah, oh, cleverly done, Zena warrior princess. <laughs> yeah, nice work. Other things people believe to be true about Sappho are that she was a great innovator. Certainly that seems plausible to me. She invents, amongst other things, the Mixolydian mode, which tragic poets will go on to use, a special mode of poetry. She invents a plectron, a type of plectrum, little ivory plectrum. And she also invents, apparently, a pectus, a type of lyre, which is made from tortoise shell. In her poetry, she talks about her shell. She means her lyre. If you're wondering how you make a lyre out of a tortoise, it's pretty bad news the tortoise. Um, <laughs> I'm the worst vegetarian in the world. Just telling you about this is making me feel guilty. It must have been an awful time to be a Blue Peter pet. <laughs> Trundling along. <laughs> oh, he looks sonorous. <laughs> run! Run, Alan! <laughs> I have run. What we don't have, of course, is recordings of Sappho to know what her music sounded like. What I do have is the next best thing which is a brilliant band who has set her lyrics to music. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Little Machine! Loose on her 
everyone with their version of Sappho's The Moon and the Pleiades. Weren't they brilliant? So the vast majority of Sappho's poetry does not survive. About 97% of it does not survive. What we have are two complete poems and a bunch of fragments. And if we'd recorded this show two years ago, it would have been one complete poem and a bunch of fragments. And those fragments are of differing lengths. Some of them are several stanzas long. Some of them are just a few lines. Some of them are just a few words. Some of them are a word, right? Uh, to give you an example, I have brought Anne Carson's brilliant version of Sappho. If you're thinking this looks like a suspiciously long book for two poems, I have to tell you that one, the Greek is in there as well. And also, these are what the pages look like. They're mainly blank. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, fragment 108, O Kala, O Cariessa, Cora, O be Beautiful, O Graceful One. Uh, fragment 107, you know, just as short, Er eti Parthenias epibalamai, do I still yearn for my virginity? Well, we've all been on that date. Um, <laughs> in 2014, classicists got lucky. This hardly ever happens. <laughs> When this manuscript was published in 2014, it included not just small fragments, but a whole poem, the brother's poem. This made international news. It was on Newsnight. Edith Hall was on Newsnight reading this poem in Greek. Yes, big classics news finally happened. You know, what's interesting about these poems is that they made us look at a different side of Sappho. We'd focused so much on the kind of intense, sensuous, intimate nature of Sappho. And then suddenly in the brother's poem, she's talking about kind of household worries, about money and things like that. And I think this is what's so glorious about it is that there's no, there's no sense that we need to divide Sappho, this sort of sexual being, from Sappho, the woman who worries about money because she can't do anything about it because she's a woman in the ancient world and her brother is running off with a courtesan and causing all kinds of chaos. So, you know, we do think of her, at least I think of her since, these, since the Brothers poem came out, as, as a more domestic person than I had done before. But this is still the woman who says, you know, I can't, I, I can't do my weaving, Aphrodite, because I'm broken with longing for a boy. I know, we've all had to put our knitting down. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, Edith. Those papyri fragments from 2014, the Brothers poem, did it make you reappraise how you read her and think about her? No, actually, it didn't make me reappraise her because I've always known that for every woman who has a sexual fantasy, there's also a female businesswoman trying to run a shipping business out of, you know, an Eastern Greek island. I assumed, I always assumed she, I, I always assumed she was, but it, what it has given us is the first actually objective evidence that women ran shipping businesses. It's freight, you know, it's like containerization from Lesbos to, to Egypt. Her problem is that she's been left at home, she's grown up, she's, it's the Princess Anne thing, all right? She's a highly competent sister who's got a real, you know, idiot of an older brother. <laughs> <laughs> 
and she's got a silly little brother who just won't grow up. <laughs> I actually have two brothers exactly like that, so I know where I speak. <laughs> What's so brilliant about it aesthetically, though, is she uses the metaphor of cargo all the way through. It's like, I am freighted down with anxiety. You know, she uses... It's a wonderful, unifying metaphor, is the loaded ship. And as so often, she creates these mini-dramatic vignettes. There's another person who's a silly, old, gossipy woman in the village who keeps going on at her, saying, don't worry, you'll come back soon. And she's saying, oh, shut up, you have no evidence for that. Stop giving me false reassurance... What you should be doing is just telling me to go to the temple and calm down and pray to the gods, right? So she sets up this as actually a street row with another lesbian woman over the missing man. That theatre, I mean, you can see why the Greeks actually meant theatre only about 60 years later, as soon as you read that. Absolutely. And how were they found, these fragments? I mean, <laughs> you kind of assume that we've... I know mean, there are like a million boxes in Oxford from Oxyrhynchus. This one unopened, is not from Oxford and it's not from Oxyrhynchus. Where did it turn up? OK. Imagine an American papyrologist with a funny name. I've done that. It might be Dirk Obink. Yep. I've done that. Done that. Yep. OK, so Professor Dirk Obink, who's at Christchurch, Oxford, and one of the three people in the world who can actually read... Greek papyri properly. I'm another one, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He told people that he'd met a man who knew a man who might have a piece of papyrus illegally brought out of Egypt, but nobody's allowed ever to talk about that it's somewhere in London in a private collection. And I've now said more than I'm really allowed to, and I may be confronted by a hitman later. (laughs) The reason that we have some of these very short fragments is a kind of glorious reason, but at the same time an intensely frustrating one. It is not because they were chosen by scholars who wanted to find glorious representative pieces of Sappho's work that would explain her to future generations. It's usually because they were grammarians who were really interested in like a verb or something. So they've quoted it going, oh, and here's an excellent example of meh, 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 meh. And that's it, just that one tiny piece. So that's the only reason it exists is because a verb nerd was excited by it. <laughs> It's impossible to imagine an equivalent, but I guess if if all of Tennyson were lost, all of it, apart from like two lines of the Lady of Shalott, and so all we had from the whole of him was uh, out flew the web and floated wide, the mirror cracked from side to side, and it had been saved because somebody liked the way there was an apostrophe and cracked. (laughs) That's interesting, I'll write that down. And then two and a half thousand years of scholars going, hmm, did he maybe sell glass? Because he is interested in mirrors, isn't he? Yeah. Is he afraid of spiders? Because that thing with the web, I think he's afraid of spiders. Um, So I suppose the question is, why do we love her? Given how hard she is to read, given how hard these fragments are to read, why do we still read her? And I guess the answers are numerous, and for me at least... The answers are this intensely sensuous person and this intensely passionate writing. She pathologizes love in a way that nobody had before. So when Sappho writes about love, it's a medical condition. You know, she has fever. Uh, She is afflicted with madness. She's going green. She is sick from loving you. She calls uh, Eros, the god of love at one point, a melter of limbs. Literally any time you listen to any love song and somebody says, you give me fever, it's Sappho. It's Sappho the whole way. This is why I think she's brilliant, is that even when you have these tiny, tiny fragments of just two words, you know everything about her, or at least you feel like you can put everything onto her, I suppose I should say. Fragment 38, optice ame, you burn me. That's it. 
the whole poem that survives. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome writer and theatre maker Stella Duffy. Stella, have you always been a fan of Sappho? <laughs> you not you couldn't even say that without laughing. <laughs> Well, funnily enough, Natalie, uh, I was born in a village council estate. There's not a lot of classicists around there. I grew up in a small timber town in New Zealand. There's not a lot of classicists around there. But by about the age of 14, I did know that I was indeed a fan of Sappho. Um, <laughs> when you're a young lesbian woman, desperate, this is well before Buffy and Xena, obviously. Um, I know I sound 25 on the radio. Um, but, <laughs> I, there was no role models. There was nothing. There was brilliant Beryl Reed being hilarious and horrendous in The Killing of Sister George. Yeah. Yes. And that was it, literally. And so coming out as a young woman, thinking, who is there? Who can I read? What is there? And then finding, when I got to university, that somebody who existed a long, long time ago, being a woman at all, we are left with very few role models um, in any field because we haven't been written about. Being a gay woman, we've got even fewer. And then there's this woman who's writing with lusciousness and deliciousness and... As you say, we don't know anything, but I promise you I know a lot of lesbian women who think that they know exactly what they're reading when they read cloth dripping. <laughs> uh, people have got very caught up in debates about her sexuality. I think they always tend to find themselves denying one part of her or another. Do you think it matters to how you read her, how you enjoy her? Yeah, I don't think it matters at all. And actually, I, I really mind... You know, the fact that I'm gay is not the most interesting thing about me. And yet I have been introduced as a lesbian writer or a gay writer. It's like, no, you know, the, the 15 novels might be slightly more interesting, particularly when I'm talking about novels. Um, but I don't get paid for being a lesbian, funnily. Um, and, and I've been practising for years, right? <laughs> You're so qualified, no, Stella, that's the really. thing. Um, I don't think it matters at all. I totally get, you know, as I've said, I get why people want role models. I get why we want to be able to claim her for ourselves, particularly when there are so few. But actually, the fact that a woman would write about male love and female love and shipping and all of it, and that, that even though there's so little that's extant, we've still got something that shows her as a quite a rounded person. Mm. You go back all this time and there's a woman who cares about so much as well as love. And what do you think her contemporary readers are doing when we find so little about her and we kind of fill in our own subtext? Do you think that's an important part of reading her? Is it part of the appeal, actually, that we know so little and we can therefore make her who we want? I, I think it's the part of the appeal of any writing. Something like Medea, right? Now, every modern creative writing course will tell you, show, don't tell. Well, that's not what happens in Medea. Medea does not kill the children on stage. That's a spoiler, people. Um, she, <laughs> that happens on stage and we the audience fill it in for ourselves from the speech that the messenger comes and gives we don't see it you know the Macbeths do not kill Duncan on stage we fill in the gruesomeness the darkness with Sappho we get to fill in the love and the other parts of her that we don't know about now to, to my mind as a reader I want that I want to be able to dream in to what this person is doing when they're writing and I don't need to have everything spelled out for me because I, like, I, like, I want to be part of it too. And where there are gaps where we don't know about her, actually, that allows us to be part of it.
We cannot go without doing the myths of Sappho in sort of increasing order of how much they annoy me, I guess. The first are those 17th, 18th century translators who consistently switch the sex of the person that she is talking about because they're too challenged by the fact that she's a woman talking about a woman. Those people get on my wick. The second... Actually, to be fair, there's a sort of slight sweetness to this one, relatively speaking. The second, the ones who go, well, I th- she keeps talking about all these young women that she likes. She seems to know an awful lot of them. Do you know, I think she must have been a school teacher. <laughs> because, of course, who else might know lots of young women? Literally no one at all. Just school teachers. That, what a good answer. Even Ovid, who normally I have an enormous amount of time for, is guilty in this department for me. But in an interesting way, in his Heroides, letters from mythical women to their mythical lost men, so from Penelope to Odysseus, from Hypsipyle to Jason, from Ariadne to Theseus, he includes a letter from Sappho. The letter that he writes for Sappho is for love of Phion, the ferryman. And she is so desolate that he has abandoned her that she is about to jump to her watery grave from the white cliffs of Lucas, I think. And it's like, it's like the opposite of Vera Lynn, I just realised. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be bluebirds where, sorry? <laughs> there we go. Um, and it annoys me because, number one, it is, I think, perhaps the earliest example of the cliché which is now known as bury your gaze in which you have a perfectly functioning, say, gay couple in, say, I don't know, Last Tango in Halifax, and then someone goes, oh, they look happy. Shall we kill one of them? What? (laughs) What? What just happened? Yeah, we should kill one. That'll be dramatic. What? (laughs) Why is this? And it's like, Sappho's... She's already dead. Do you know what I mean? But secondly, and this particularly gets on my nerves, it's the fact that she has to throw herself uh, to a watery grave for love of a man, Fion... He exists in another story, and in that story, he is sort of trotting along. He's an old man. He's trotting along, and he does a favour for Aphrodite, which sounds a lot smuttier than I meant it to. Um, (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, And she gives him this sort of potion, ointment, I guess, uh, in gratitude. And then he rubs it on himself. I'm so sorry. Um, (laughs) And at the end of it, he's young again. He's become young. So what I'm telling you is that Sappho, in theory, jumped to her watery death for love of someone who was mythical. This would be the equivalent of me jumping to my watery death tonight because a unicorn hasn't returned my texts. (laughs) Come on, Dobbin. (laughs) We can make it work. Um, I'd like to uh, conclude with two things about Sappho, two quotes about Sappho, which I said about her rather than by her. The first is from Strabo, the geographer, ancient geographer, who described her work as Thaumaston Tikrema, a thing to be wondered at. And the other is from a Greek anthology which contained her legendary grave inscription. It says, no sun will ever rise on a world which does not know the name of the lyric poet Sappho. 97% of her work destroyed and she was still right. Ladies and gentlemen, Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics was written and performed by me, Natalie Haynes. My guests were Professor Edith Hall, Stella Duffy, Little Machine, including Walter Ray. Our producer was Mary Ward-Lowry. And next week, Natalie exhibits...